This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to Trumpet Hour this Friday, November 10th, 2023. We also replay on Saturday morning as at your convenience on thetrumpet.com slash radio. I'm Philip Nice, and I'm with our Philadelphia Trumpet writers here in studio and online here to bring you a digest of the most important news of the week. In studio is Andrew Miller. Hello. At our Canada office is Abraham Blondeau. Good day. And in our studio in Britain are Richard Palmer and Mihailo Zekic. Good afternoon. Good to be here. So, Mihailo Zekic, all eyes continue to be on the Middle East uh, this week. Can you give us an update on, first, the the main events that you want us to keep in mind and then drill down into the one that you think is most important? Of course. Well, for a little update on Israel's ground invasion, that's if you've been paying attention to the news feed from almost any source of any uh, ideology anywhere in the world, that's probably going to be among the top stories floating out there for the whole week. Israel is continuing to consolidate their encirclement of Gaza City. Last time I checked, the IDF is now moving into uh, capturing the northern areas uh, of the outskirts of Gaza City, like bordering the Mediterranean Sea. So it looks like full encirclement should be soon. And from then on, the actual siege. Uh, There's also, of course, battles taking place in other parts of Gaza as well. As of earlier this week, there was a... uh, a skirmish between a group of terrorists. Uh, what I heard was they were having their so-called last stand um, after their battalion was whittled down in the Indonesia hospital in the northwestern corner of Gaza, so-called because it's operated by the Indonesian Red Cross. And the White House announced that Israel has agreed to four-hour pauses daily to allow civilians in Gaza to be able to escape south. Who knows how much arm-wrenching the uh, Biden presidency had to do for that. We'll see if that lasts. Outside of the actual situation in Gaza itself, the IDF also said yesterday that their Aero 3 missile system intercepted a Houthi missile from Yemen targeting the southern Israeli city of Eilat, which would make it the first successful interception the Aero 3 has done. We've we've talked about the Aero 3 system and its technological prowess uh, before on this program. And outside the area of Israel, Turkey's constitutional court upheld on Wednesday the so-called disinformation law of the Erdogan government, saying that it is constitutional. Uh, The government has used this to uh, throw hundreds of journalists in prison in Turkey. The democratic backsliding and the erosion of the rule of law in countries like Turkey is obviously something we watch intently or intensely on the trumpet here. It's amazing what the Israelis are being forced uh, to do in this war, to to fight a war like that. Uh, And I did see a visual of what you're talking about where uh, just a stream of people, hundreds and hundreds of people just walking pretty closely together uh, through through Gaza, through the bombed out buildings and so forth. And the person was making the point that they could not do this when Hamas was in control of the area. But now that... Israel had control of that area of Gaza, those people could evacuate south. Uh, Just again, just showing the difference between Hamas and Israel, because when they tried to evacuate south prior to that, the claim is 
Hamas killed them. And somebody killed a lot of people because there's visuals, there's video of, of uh, a road there in Gaza, uh, presumably leading south, and there's just bodies everywhere. And it looks like what they did to the, the Jews on October 7th. And it's just an incredibly insane situation there that the Israelis are being forced to, to deal with. And then I saw that, that point that you made about the Arrow 3. That is the first ever combat in space in history. The, the missile actually reached, you know, the, what's considered space and uh, was destroyed by the interceptor. So mankind has, according to that, mankind has now brought combat into space for the first time. Uh, so uh, obviously a lot of things going on there in Israel. Um, but what's, what's the main story that you've seen emerge from, from that area this week? The main story from the Middle East also concerns Israel, also concerns the Gaza war, but it's not so much a story about literal bombs or bullets uh, going in some places, but rather words. This story involves Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen. On Tuesday, he gave his first ever uh, interview to media since the war started on October 7th. He uh, gave a brief interview to the Wall Street Journal. And this is the journal's paraphrase of what he told them. But he said, quote, once Hamas is toppled, Israel seeks to turn over responsibility for governing the Palestinian enclave to an international coalition, including the U.S., the European Union and Muslim majority countries or to local political leaders in Gaza. End quote. Now, there's been a lot of talk as to, OK, Israel wants to eliminate Hamas. Uh they're at least getting a lot more support with this than, say, some other operations they did against Hamas and against terrorists before. Israel's not backing down no matter how much some other people try to pressure them to. But what's the end game? What happens after they get rid of Hamas? Does everybody just sit on a smoldering ruin, scratching their heads, wondering what to do now? Well, of course not. The government is planning for this. And according to what uh, Foreign Minister Cohen said, Looks like they want outside support to go and uh, deal with this. That's uh, perhaps to be expected. I mean, if Israeli boots are indefinitely on the ground in Gaza, you could expect a lot more terror attacks, a lot more Israeli lives being lost in the long term, as it was prior to uh, the 2005 uh, evacuation from Gaza. And plus, even when you look at the how people are reacting to Israel's invasion, even with October 7th in pretty recent hindsight, with all the bad press they're getting now, they're going to be getting a lot more press and pressure to disengage from Gaza if they stay. So what's the solution? Among other options, looks like they want an international coalition to come in. And perhaps something similar to what was happening with Afghanistan before 2021 happened. Alessandro Accorsi, who is a senior analyst at Crisis Group, told Al Monitor in an article this week that uh, European uh, officials have been privately sending messages to one another, talking uh, in back rooms about this kind of thing happening. So far, not many people are taking seriously European boots on the ground in, in Gaza. But the fact that, A, the foreign minister of Israel is floating it around and B, a lot of other people are talking about it shows this is a serious proposal. And if you think about some of the other groups that were mentioned, uh, Cohen mentioned the U S 
I mean, the Palestinians hate the U.S. just almost as much as they do Israel. America's trying to disengage from the Middle East. It's unlikely they want to have a long-term presence there. Any Arab country, even one that has friendly relations with Israel, by becoming part of the coalition, they're basically saying they're partners with Israel, and that's going to put them on the target of a bunch of terrorists as well. Uh, to local political leaders in Gaza, Hamas are the local political leaders in Gaza. Europe, meanwhile, they're friendly with Israel. They're also pretty friendly with the Palestinians. They could, if push comes to shove, look like a pretty good solution to what to do about Gaza. It's also not an unprecedented solution. I mean, we have, uh, Mr. Zeki mentioned Afghanistan, but uh, perhaps a closer parallel might be the United Nations interim force in Lebanon, uh, where it's on a smaller scale, but it's basically here for the same reason. Israel invaded Lebanon. Uh, they pulled out. Then Hezbollah used Lebanon as a base to attack Israel. And then Israel wanted some kind of a solution, something to stop Hezbollah to continue to use southern Lebanon as a, and the Beka Valley in particular as a base to attack Israel from. And the solution was UNIFEL. And Germany has played a leading part in the maritime component of UNIFEL with German ships, quite often fulfilling a rotation off the coast there. You've had other European forces as part of that interim force there on the ground in, in Lebanon. So there is precedent for serving in this kind of capacity. I think what would happen in Gaza would have to be a bit different. It is a bigger uh, problem. Also, UNIFEL has not been particularly effective. Uh, and Israel will, they, they don't have anything better, so they've not replaced it, but uh, they're also not massive fans of the job that they've done. Uh, but maybe even then, maybe the solution then will be a bigger force. And perhaps a, I could see them wanting a bigger European component. It tends to be the UN troops from third world countries that have a reputation, at least, for being the most unreliable and the most susceptible to being bribed by Hezbollah. Uh, so that could be an example of where we've seen this before. Now, Richard Palmer, you bring out some some relevant precedents there for sure, as far as international forces and so forth. Uh, some of which, you know, include or are led by the United States. Some of which, you know, not so much. Uh, Mihailo Zekic, as, as you said, the, at this point, this is rhetoric, um, and rhetoric can become reality or can stay rhetoric. And there is so much going on in Gaza, in Israel, in the Middle East, uh, and there's so much that could go on, and this could go in, in so many different directions, and really anything could happen. But in the notes you provided uh, to me before the show, you say that not just anything will happen, but you're looking for something specific to happen. Of course. Well, again, just as a disclaimer, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Even with the conclusion of this war, we bring the sure analysis of Bible prophecy into our predictions. The prophecy itself and how we get there usually has a lot of twists and turns we're not expecting. But one thing we are expecting, at least uh, as an end result of what's going on in general with the Israelis and the Palestinians, is a stronger involvement of Europe. And in a very specific, shall we say, unexpected way, a prophecy that I often read in this program, Daniel 11, verse 40, talks about a king of the north or Europe and a king of the south or radical Islam being at loggerheads with each other. When talking about the Daniel 11 prophecy, I'll jump from verse 40 directly to 42 and 43, talking about some of the other countries that will fall under radical Islam's sway. This time I'm going to talk about verse 41. 
which talks about he, speaking of Europe, will also enter into the glorious land or the holy land. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, has talked uh, about this entry. If you look at the Hebrew, it doesn't indicate a forceful entry. It doesn't indicate a military invasion, per se. Instead, he's pointed to this involving European peacekeepers. He shall enter also into the glorious land, into Jerusalem of all places. He's entered. This army is entering into the glorious land. Now that word enter in no way applies to force. So everything indicates it's a they're letting them do this because they want to have peace with, well, Germany and the moderate Arabs. They think they already have peace with them. But they're in for a big double cross. That was Mr. Flurry there from a Keep David program called the Psalm 83 Prophecy back from September of 2020. You could hear from his own words. What we expect is that Europe is going to become a trusted partner of Israel, trusted military partner of Israel, somebody that Israel looks to, sees what they're, how they're combating radical Islam, sees how they're supposedly on Israel's side in this. And Israel says, yes, we need this. There's a lot of chaos happening everywhere. We need Europe in. We need European boots on the ground in Israel to protect us from this. And when you hear the Israeli Ford minister floating around just that, maybe if this ends up coming to fruition, maybe it won't be this particular deployment. But still, I mean, the the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has so many twists and turns. Usually when it comes down to it, is having a foreign country come and help Israel with armies is usually not on the table simply because of the complexities and how much the rest of the world usually gangs up on Israel for this. But the prophecy in Daniel 11.41 suggests that Israel, something happens where Israel sees Europe as a partner and puts their trust in Europe to take care of the problem. The rest of the uh, the prophecy, and as you heard from Mr. Fleury, shows that this is not to be trusted. This is going to be a double cross. Europe is going to turn on Israel and side with at least a portion of the Muslim world in blotting out the name of Israel. But until there's a lot of, again, a lot of twists and, and turns on the road until we get there. One of the first starting points of that is Europe getting involved in the Middle East, in the Palestinian-Israeli peace process, in fighting radical Islam with Israel. And that is what we're seeing talked about right now when it wasn't before. There's no arguing about what is happening in Israel, and there's no arguing about the rhetoric that is attempting to shape what is about to happen in Israel. And at the same time, there's no arguing with what the Bible states in in Daniel 11 in this case. So is this how Daniel 11 becomes reality in the 2020s? The imminent future, though imminent, is obscure, but you should check out the uh, the article that you mentioned, Mihailo Zekic. Should Israel trust Germany? Should Israel trust Germany? And that's available at thetrumpet.com. So thanks for that report, Mihailo. We move now to our next region, which is Asia. Jeremiah Jacques usually covers that for us, but he has a stand-in today. Abraham Blondeau, you've been watching Asia, and you're going to bring us the main stories from that region. I think there's some interesting stories, and I'll just cover three significant ones from the region. This week, Russia signaled the withdrawal from one of the signature Cold War treaties in Europe. It's the Conventional Armed Forces in Europe Treaty, and that was signed in 1990, right at the end of the Cold War. 
And that treaty is supposed to limit the amount of conventional military units that you can amass at a shared border between NATO and the Russian states. So Russia, they've pulled out of that. And this is all part of the competing narratives between the two sides, that NATO is baiting Russia in the conflict and expanding into Russia's sphere of influence. That's the Russian side, while NATO says that Putin's on an imperialistic crusade to rebuild the Soviet Union. And so in a way, the, these treaties have been violated over time, but it's still significant that diplomatically Putin would withdraw from this, showing that he's not kowtowing to anything. In fact, this is an escalation in his ambitions. The second story is some Chinese coastal guard ships or their militia ships, as they're called. They rammed some Filipino ships in the South China Sea. This has happened before, but it's a pretty serious act of aggression, uh, and it just continues to amplify in these territorial disputes around the Spratly Islands between multiple nations. But I think the reason this is significant is that this is a deliberate act uh, of aggression, and this happens right before an international summit, which leads to the third story, which is this Wednesday, there's the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco. She and President Joe Biden are expected to meet there and have a discussion. This could be significant, mainly because there are some tensions between China and the United States, but also Xi has been very effective at using these meetings to project Chinese soft power and just using the media to his advantage to make him look strong and Western leaders weak. Just based on the trajectory of how things have gone, this could be another way Xi will really solidified dominance over the Pacific region while America's influence is teetering a bit. So Russia withdraws from a major military treaty. Chinese vessels ram other vessels again in the South China Sea. And the leader of China meets with the leader of the United States in person in San Francisco. Uh, presumably no diamonds or uh, sports cars will be exchanged at that time. Yeah. Um, what would you say is the main development this week involving the nations of Asia? Yeah, the main story I want to talk about is just a really interesting development because I think it shows how these bigger events we've been talking about a lot, the Ukraine war, the war in, in Israel, how it contributes to these other prophetic trends being fulfilled. And that is Russia and Turkey, they're going on a diplomatic blitz in Central Asia. Central Asia, I kind of think of it as the flyover region. So the countries in this region, they're Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan. So we don't talk about these nations too much. Generally, they're in Russia's sphere of influence, but they do play a pretty critical role in what's going on right now. And that's because Central Asia, it's really becoming a key fulcrum in the new economic logistic trade block that Russia, China, and Iran are really trying to build. Just geographically, they're right in the middle of China's Belt and Road Initiative. It's also a part of the Caspian Sea Corridor. So goods can be taken uh, through Central Asia to the Caspian Sea, and then from the Caspian Sea, transport up to Turkey, and then onto Europe. This cuts down time for trade, and so it can become a major way Russia and China, they can circumvent even using sea routes and America's ability to sanction and do all these things. And so they're, they're really trying to strengthen their influence in Central Asia and really solidify this trade block. 
that has built the counter to the United States. Turkey is the main destination for a lot of trade going from Asia to Europe. And so Turkey is a key player. And this kind of plays in with Turkey cozying up with Russia a lot. And America is distracted. They have a war in Ukraine. They have a war in Israel now. China's being pushy in the Pacific. America is distracted. And this is allowing Vladimir Putin and these these anti-American leaders to really bring Central Asia further under their influence and, and really towards this this bigger picture of having this trade block that countered the United States. Uh, Europe sees this, and Europe is trying to get involved too. President Macron of France just had a meeting with Central Asian nations, and he's trying to become a player there as well because they can see that this is all part of the bigger power struggle and that Central Asia is becoming a key fulcrum, like I said, in this new economic alliance that's emerging that does not have the United States involved. So this week you're focusing on the flyover stands of Asia. And this is like so many other aspects of the news, I think, whether it's trade routes or sea routes or, or Islamic terror or inflation or constitutional principles. When everything's going good, you don't notice, right? You don't, you know, when, when the United States was projecting power from Manus Air Base there in uh, Kyrgyzstan, I think, and could project power into Central Asia or into Afghanistan. You, know, you don't think much about it. Now that those are more up for grabs and have always had a heavy Russian influence, you, you realize what you had once it's gone. You know, same thing with in inflation or constitutional principles or Islamic terror. So we're, we're seeing this as part of a much larger trend, of course, of the weakening of the United States. And you bring out a good point that it, that there's an economic alliance. It's not an outright military alliance. It's certainly not fighting a war against the United States, but the, an economic alliance. What drew your attention to this economic alliance? What really made it stand out is this is one of the key end-time Bible prophecies that the Trump's been talking about for a long time. And that you can find that in Isaiah 23, which talks about this mart of nations, which is basically just a trade block. In Isaiah 23, it really highlights this block between Europe and Asia. In geopolitical terms, Sir Halford John McKinder, he wrote a book, and he, he's the one who first started talking about this world island. It's like the center point. And for most, most of the last 200 years, since the British Empire, a lot of world trade and power has been on the periphery. So if you look at a map of the British Empire and the United States, a lot of their power, their influence is on the sea gates in the area surrounding Eurasia or the World Island. But Isaiah 23 says that there's going to be this economic trading block between Europe, China, Russia, Japan. And then we can also know from other Bible prophecies that that a lot of Middle Eastern nations around the same time are going to be allied with Germany as well. And that, that's in the Psalm 83, which Mahalio just was talking about. So you can see that in, in this Eurasian power block, there's a solidification, and it's all based around taking down the United States. They'll make a temporary alliance between all these differing nations to counter the United States. And so this economic system, it will need logistic routes. It will need power bases that will need the means to actually uh, have wealth to and to be able to function without the United States, without the kind of the infrastructure that we've been used to. These nations also have taken control of a lot of that infrastructure as well. But you can see how 
Central Asia is right in the heart. It's right in between Europe, China, Russia. It, it's, a, it's a key part of the solidification of this block. There's a great article on the Trump.com. It's called The Great Mart of Nations, and that will be in the show notes, which we'll explain this in some more detail. But that's the prophecy we need to kind of come back to, and, and it gives us the, the big overview at where it's leading. We, we see the end result, and we can start to see how all these big events and small events are contributing to this trajectory of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Yeah, why is a, a nation a world power? You know, why is America a superpower now or the British Empire the, a great world power before? it? A lot of it does come back to being able to produce goods, right? I mean, to being able to uh, turn minerals in the ground into ships and, and railroads and to be able to move the, the materials around in order to make higher and higher tech goods and weapons uh, and, 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 and logistics and supplies. So much of that is uh, things that you don't think about. You think, well, this nation has a, has a uh, super carrier uh, or doesn't. Well, how does that get built? It gets built by these railroads, these 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 trade agreements, these you know smelting of, of of metals into weapons of war, super weapons of war. And uh, that article is a good one that you mentioned, the Great Mart of Nations at the Trumpet dot com. Using that same that phrase from Isaiah twenty three, which you know you read Isaiah twenty three and it can be confusing. You know what what is this talking about? When is this supposed to happen? You know, read the Great Mart of Nations at thetrumpet.com. And I've mentioned this before, but the, the thing that really made me realize how important trade is, how important, you know, these routes are for building superpowers uh, was something you wrote, Richard Palmer, uh, all roads lead to Beijing. I'm looking at it right now. I think I'm going to add that to the show notes. All, all roads lead to Beijing. And just I just got this sense of, you know, all this steel and all this the you know nuclear power and all these things coming together to create uh, a uh, a mart of nations there and and some superpowers that that far outpower the United States as hard as that is to imagine. Uh, so, Mr. Palmer, you are our our next region, the European region. Can you give us an update on the main events that have been happening there? Several of the news stories this week revolve around turmoil in the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, we've had Portugal's government fall and Spain put a government together uh, dealing with Portugal first. You had the, the government kind of fell apart earlier this week when it was revealed the prime minister, the socialist prime minister, Antonio Costa, uh, was under a corruption investigation. It seems like the, it's pre, he's pretty seriously implicated in some corruption surrounding so-called green projects uh, like lithium exploration or uh, making the so-called green hydrogen for use in energy projects. There's accusations, I think, that he was involved in kind of kickbacks and pay-for-play pay schemes and this kind of thing. So he's resigned. He said he's not going to run again. Uh, it took us a few days to find out exactly how it was going to play out, but now they've announced that they're going to hold fresh elections on March 10th. And we could be seeing a year or so of political turmoil in Portugal, you look at where the polls are right now, and I mean it's a long time, but there's no there's no obvious winner. There's no clear majority. 
his, the Costa's party, the socialists seem like they're not going to do very well. The right wing party, I can't remember what they're called, but they also have socialists in the name just to make things nice and confusing for outside observers. Uh, they don't look like they're going to have a majority, just like just about every other country in Europe. You have a fringe right wing party, in this case, Chega, that has a significant minority of the votes that everyone else refuses to work with. But maybe they'll have to compromise this time because a coalition might not be um, might not be possible without them. Much as I hate to say it about Portugal, England's oldest ally, perhaps on their own, this is not earth shattering that they're having this uh, political disruption. But it's another remarkable example of this trend that we've seen again and again and again throughout Europe, where democracy is just ceasing to function and throwing up all kinds of contested results. It makes things very fragile because when a uh, when a crisis hits, there's nobody with a firm hand on the tiller. And Spain is, you're seeing at a different stage in a similar kind of cycle. So they had their elections back in July and nobody did particularly well. In this case, you had the Catalan separatists kind of held the balance of power within the parliament that want Catalonia to break away. And now we, the socialist, the left-wing party have announced that they've done a deal with the Catalan separatist, Pedro Sanchez. He has promised amnesty for all that were involved in the 2017 attempted independence referendum in Catalonia, uh, that the judicial system will stop going after them. He previously said that he thought a blanket amnesty was unconstitutional. Now he's done a U-turn. He's turned around and offered it as a uh, in, to get their support. The Basque separatists in another region of Spain are also supporting him. And this has led to a lot of unrest on the streets. You might have seen even images on Twitter of protests and things like that, where there's just a lot of emotion around around this issue too. And uh, you've got even the one of the a key leader, a key founding member of Vox, a fringe right party in Spain. He was shot in the face. Uh, and then that's caused, of course, more disturbance and outrage from his supporters. Uh, so potential for lots of unrest, dissatisfaction in Spain as well, and certainly just more division. It doesn't, you know, he's made, Sanchez has made all of these concessions to get this coalition government together. It doesn't seem like it's going to be particularly stable. They don't really have a whole lot of common interests. You know, th a core part of the coalition wants to break away from Spain. Uh, they don't really have a strong incentive to work with the Spanish government. So it looks like their inconclusive election has led to not just a fragile government, but social unrest as well. With the uh, Catalan separatists, they have a lot of partners in Russia and Russian sponsorship. I remember there was a report from the New York Times way back when that showed some leaked memos from a Russian oligarch even floating the idea of sending Russian mercenaries to help Catalonian independence and and the series of texts and whatnot going back and forth between his Russian partners includes uh, Carles Puigdemont, uh, who is the leader in exile of or wannabe leader of, of an independent Catalonia. He's most likely being able to come back to Spain now. And I'm sure the average Spanish public knows at least some of this. But I think it's interesting when you look at, as Mr. Palmer was bringing out, this far-right party that's increasingly looking like the more moderate option out there when you have Russian-backed people that want to destroy the country on the one hand. On the other hand, you have the far-right party who themselves are getting shot 
the fact that a party that can have like real, I remember their leader Santiago Abascal once even posed an ad on a horse saying that the Reconquista is about to begin again, talking about basically evicting uh, all Muslim inhabitants of Spain. That Spain obviously has some problems with terrorism there, but you know that somebody can start talking about moving whole populations or attacking whole populations in a country and look like the face of moderation shows just how dire a situation things are getting in Spain. Yeah, it can be a complicated situation. There is a lot that you could get into there. There have been anti-Islam protests this past week because of exactly what Mihailo said there with the, the Vox leadership being very much against Islam. You've got issues even holding over from the Spanish Civil War. There are a lot of fault lines that could cause Spain some major problems. But I think certainly this, this division that you're seeing across Europe as democracy ceases to function is, is probably the predominant story from just all across the Iberian Peninsula this week. Europeans at this point have got to be wondering, is this just what, is this just how it's going to be? Is this just what our nations and our continent is going to be like now? Are we just going to stagger from one type of turmoil to another? I mean, we've got immigrants pouring in, our currency and economy gasping for breath, our energy supplies are suspect. Russia is actually at war in Eastern Europe. You know, are we just going to be this fragile until we finally break? I mean, that's what would be going through my mind if I was a European. Um, so you've updated us there on the, the Iberian Peninsula, which is the western tip of the continent. Your main story, for which you've given me ever the slightest heads up, heads up comes from right at the core of the continent. Yes, we've got a U-turn from Germany on their migration policy. Angela Merkel is probably now best remembered for, her, for saying one phrase, we can do this. When you had all these migrants coming across the Middle East, she kind of single-handedly instituted this welcoming culture in Germany, saying, well, we can do this. We can welcome these migrants in. And what a turnaround. So that was 2015, and the leader of the nominally right-wing party in Germany was saying, let's welcome in migrants. This week, we've got the leader of the left-wing party and the more migrant-friendly, in quote, party saying, we need to find ways to keep them out, and we need to discourage them from coming. So this week, the German government, along with leaders of the individual German states, got together and signed a new migration pact. Uh, The Chancellor Olaf Scholz, said, our shared goal is to push back irregular migration. So they're going to be much slower in handing out taxpayer money to migrants. They're going to give them vouchers instead of cash. They're going to delay how long they can... They've got to be in the country for longer before they can access welfare payments. Uh, it's going to say that we basically they'll be giving migrants about a billion euros less each year, a billion euros of taxpayers' money uh, not handed over. They're going to make it easier to deport gang members, easier to support migrant homes. Uh, and what you've also got is a growing push within Germany to, shall we say, bend the rules or sail close to the wind when it comes to deporting migrants. So Friedrich Mertz, the leader of Angela Merkel's own Christian Democratic Union Party, he pulled out of the talks. And a big part of the reason why is he wants migrants to basically be deported instantly, to be sent out of, out of the EU and to have their migration, uh, their asylum claims processed there. And Italy agreed in a deal with Albania this week to do exactly the same thing. When migrants rescued in the Mediterranean will no longer come to Italy, they'll go to Albania. And if their asylum applications are approved, they can be admitted to the EU later on. And if not, well, it's so much easier to deport them because they're not there. They're not in Italy. And this is something that is kind of the minimum common sense thing that you would need to do to deal with this problem. 
and also legally pro problematic. We're trying to do the same thing here in Britain, where they're trying to process migrant claims in Rwanda. And I think it's an eminently sensible policy. And it's kind of a travesty that nobody's done anything similar uh, in recent years. And it's completely gummed up in court cases and legal and human rights lawyers and you know they've got a right to a pet cat you can't deport them and hear them in rwanda and, and maybe it will be a bit uncomfortable for them in rwanda they might not have all of the luxuries that they would have living in the uk and so you know, it's a violation of their human rights uh and a lot of people in britain were kind of like well the eu would never do would never behave in this kind of barbaric fashion the way we want to behave over rwanda the, the kind of the liberal do-gooders uh, and now you're seeing europe doing exactly the same thing. They're subject to those same pressures. Uh, and so they're looking at, okay, well, how can we just automatically deport migrants, get them out of here uh, so that otherwise, if you don't do that, they just go missing before you have a chance to deport them. So you've got uh, Europe toughening up. You've got France just a few weeks ago saying, well, actually, we're just going to break EU law when it comes to deporting migrants. If they're dangerous criminals, we'll just deport them. Uh, we'll do it. We'll ignore the law. And if we have to pay a fine to the European Court of Human Rights, fine, whatever, we'll pay it. But we're just going to ignore the law on this particular issue. So Germany is saying this week, no, this is not how it's going to be. This is not what our continent is going to be like. France, you mentioned they're willing to just outright uh, break the law uh, to, to do so. Last week, I believe you mentioned that Denmark was actually bulldozing some immigrant areas. So it looks like Denmark is starting to say, no, this is not how it's going to be. Uh, I take it that this is what you're expecting to happen more and more in bigger and bigger ways. That's right. I mean, I kind of, in terms of uh, further reading, I'd like to point both back and forwards. We had an, I had an article a couple of trumpet print issues ago called Europe's Altered Personality, talking about uh, all of these changes that you've got away from this very liberal lefty Europe that we've gone, gone to know and not love, uh, seeing something much more uh, hardline. But I'd also like to point point you or, or kind of plug our upcoming Trumpet print edition. I've not seen any drafts, and with the news being what it is, things could change. Right. Don't hold us to this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, but at the moment, we are talking about a Trumpet print that, that at least addresses as well some of the future of Europe. And you've got this situation where I think a lot of people are and will cheer what is happening. Like what Europe does with migrants is is completely stupid. It's ridiculous at the moment. Uh, and I think it's understandable that you, you have people like Tucker Carlson and others seeing what Italy is doing and saying, well, look, we're moving in a common sense direction that is necessary to save civilization. Uh, and yeah, I think there's some truth to that. What Europe is doing right now is completely unsustainable, just having all of these, these mass migration coming in. But we've been forecasting this change in Europe's personality decades before it's happened. And the basis for that forecast that you can see playing out in your newspapers every day, you know, I, I, I had an article in this last trumpet print saying that soon European countries would start breaking the law over migration. And then it's like the week after that article goes to print, France makes their announcement. You know, these prophecies are being fulfilled, and it's because they're in the Bible. You know, it's because they're based on what the Bible says about this coming personality change for Europe. And if we go to that same source to say, well, where is this leading? It's not leading to some kind of reasonable position where Europe wakes up to the danger of radical Islam, does it, and kind of preserves democracy and decency. That it's actually going to go a lot further than that.
and you will see something you'll this this kind of trend of europe embracing its its christian heritage is going to become something more like a theocracy where you saw the place where you've seen europe in the middle ages with inquisitions and cracking down on people that deviate from the norm it will be something that becomes more militaristic and stands up for itself so it doesn't need the united states to pay to defend it okay i can see why people would be in favor of that but you go to those same prophecies and it says it's going to go a whole lot further and it's not just going to stand up for itself it's going to start invading other countries and quite brutally going after after other countries so we're seeing a personality change already and the bible bible tells us look you know don't be don't be too laid back about where this is heading uh, and i think this shows where you need that that uh bible backed information otherwise it would i think it is easy to agree with some of the tucker carlson's um, kind of saying, well, about time, this is, these are the people we need to be supporting in Europe. Uh, and that actually it's going to shift in quite a, a dangerous direction. And, and those prophecies, they're found in places like Revelation 17 that describes an empire, a spirit in Europe that we've seen rising and falling again and again. And of course, the apostle, that was written down by the apostle John. Uh, the revelation came to him from God the Father. It's written, but it's written down you know, first century AD, long before Europe's history. And we see, just as he described, empires rising and falling in Europe, led by a church. And that prophecy said there's going to, says there's going to be one more rise of this empire led by a church, and it's going to be brutal uh, before it falls again forever. So that's where this, what we're seeing, that's the character of what we're seeing rising now in Europe. So Bible prophecy is a factor. And not only that, but Bible prophecy as explained by the trumpet, as explained by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry and before him, the late Herbert W. Armstrong, Editor-in-Chief of The Plain Truth, uh, a strong claim, a bold claim to make, but read thetrumpet.com, go to thetrumpet.com, subscribe to the, the Trumpet Print Edition before the next uh, mailing list is cut so that you can read this, uh, this next edition and, and prove it for yourself, whether Bible prophecy is a factor and whether Bible prophecy as explained by the trumpet is what you are seeing. Andrew Miller, you're next up for the Anglo-America region. Hit us really quickly with the uh, the three top stories you've got from there, as well as the main story. Yeah, a number of big stories in Anglo-America this week. The federal prosecutors actually arrested three people in a very uh, high-profile brothel bust. Uh, doesn't normally make news uh, for this show, but the the clientele list for that thing was just shocking with high-ranking politicians, uh, government contractors, scientists, lawyers, attorneys, military officers, just really showing um, how deep some of the perversion amongst America's ruling elite goes. At the same time, the group Honest Reporting uncovered that the Associated Press, CNN, the New York Times, and Reuters all had journalists embedded in Hamas on the October 7th massacre. Uh, that basically means we got some uh, amazing on-the-ground photography from that massacre, but also raises several ethical questions about uh, <laughs> how much did they know was going to happen to actually have their employee, their reporters on the ground uh, as it was unfolding. And in a... A rare example of good news that's not as good as it could be, the House of Representatives voted to censure Representative Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian member of Congress, for much of her anti-Israel rhetoric. The story I, I wanted to focus on, though, is actually um, a pretty high-profile interview with Barack Obama. It always makes big news when uh, 
Barack Obama really says anything, but especially in this case where he's talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, where he's telling Americans they need to take in the whole truth of the Israel-Gaza war because both sides are to blame and nobody's hands are clean. Uh, actually, here's a clip directly from that interview where he's uh, saying what I told you he said. If you want to solve the problem, then you have to take in the whole truth. And you then have to admit nobody's hands are clean. Yeah, so as you heard that clip in there, Obama's really doubling down on the nobody's hands are clean. It's like we need a two-state solution because Israel's wrong, Palestine's wrong. This is just uh, a fight that uh, can only be uh, solved by splitting the country. And uh, as we've made... uh, point to in past programs, I mean, some of this, I mean, he's ignoring vast amounts of evidence that the the Palestinian attack on Israel is that that they are the aggressor, Uh, ignoring evidence to the point that it does raise the questions of whether he actually has like a racial animosity towards uh, the Jewish ethnic group. That That may be true, but it definitely shows an animosity, and this is something that's not getting covered as much, towards Western civilization itself. Uh, because if you're going to look at the whole truth here, Israel is a secular democracy right. with uh, freedom of religion and the rule of law where any Arab citizen can vote for Benjamin Netanyahu or anyone else who runs uh, and live a good life uh, in the one state of Israel. Uh Gaza is an Islamic theocracy that indoctrinates their children that Jews are apes and pigs that need to be killed. And so (laughs) Barack Obama's words may sound high-minded in this case, like, well, there's wrong on both sides. But it's like, no, if you're taking the word of this murderous Islamic theocracy over the word of an actual Western democracy based on checks and balances and constitutional rule of law, it's like you you may have (laughs) some racism against the Jews, but you definitely have a chip on your shoulder against uh, Western civilization itself uh, and the type of government that's not only used in Israel, but here in America. Yeah, the whole truth is that in Israel and in, in the Israel Defense Forces, you have Jews, yes, but you have secularists, you have Druze, you have Circassians, you have Muslims, Bedouins, fighting for the state of Israel. Uh, that's the whole truth. That That's, like you said, the principles of democracy and the rule of law exist there. And this other thing is nothing like that. So a, a pretty deceptive thing to be saying and to be leading people in. What brought your attention to this in particular, this comment by Barack Obama? Uh, well, the article we'll put in the show notes that really delves deeper into the prophetic significance of this is what inspires President Obama's relationship with Israel by our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry. But that article really draws heavily attention to Daniel 11 verses 32, talking about an end-time type of Antiochus epiphanies which says, those that do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery, 
but the people who know their God shall be strong. And uh, I wanted to focus it on that corrupt with flattery, because that's really kind of one of the signposts of like whether someone's coming in the spirit of Antiochus is if you're corrupting with flatteries. And if you listen to that uh, Barack Obama Save America podcast and you don't know anything about the whole truth in Gaza, it sounds like he's being very even-handed. It's like, well, we need to be fair to both sides. And it, um, it, it's quite an elegant interview. I guess I'll give him that compliment. But then you just step back and think of it enough. It's like, no, you've got a murderous Islamic theocracy on one side and another state that they call the Jewish state, but is really a secular state based on the values of Western civilization on the other side, and you're treating them equally, that definitely shows um, corrupting people with flattery in order to undermine the principles of Western civilization, at least, and maybe even grind an axe you have against the Jewish ethnic group. Right. Uh, what inspires President Obama's relationship with Israel? It's not something that there's a ton being written about out there. It's not something that he has even made a whole lot of comments about, kind of as you say. But when he does, we've learned from Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry to zero in on those and to and to see, uh, see exactly what he said and exactly what he's trying to do, because the rhetoric from uh, from Barack Obama during his presidency and now during his shadow presidency does have some uh, support for the Jewish state, you could say. You know, there are some some uh, comments pro-Israel and pro-Palestine, and so it's conveying this image of being even-handed and being um, uh, rational, but you've got to see what uh what's what's really going on there and 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 the consequence of of statements like that it's it's rhetoric at one point but at at one point the terrorists are strong enough because of the rhetoric because of the you know decisions that have been made that seem like they're just you know diplomatic decisions and so forth at some point that has a consequence of murder terrorism uh weakness nation spinning out of control. So th- so this these uh, comments do bear scrutiny and should be watched very closely. I think we can kind of bring this show full circle because I think really this story ties in with some of what Mihaila was talking about right at the start uh, and about the possibility of Europe getting more involved in the Middle East. One thing that went a little bit viral uh, just over a week ago was a video from the German vice chancellor talking about Germany's determination, Germany's moral obligation to defend Israel. He basically said, you know, it's a core reason for Germany's existence. Uh, To our government, it's as important as preserving Germany itself is preserving Israel in the Middle East. And our history, Germany's history of killing 6 million Jews means that we have a, not just a moral obligation, but just a fund, it's a fundamental reason for Germany's existence to look after Israel in the Middle East. And you look at what um, what Barack Obama is doing and saying, and he's the real power in the United States, the way the United States is behaving right now, and you can see why Israel turns to Germany. Like, you know, you compare those two, and I think Germany is looking more and more like the more appealing partner. And yeah, there's decades of background between America and Israel that just isn't necessarily there between Israel and Germany. It's not a turnaround that will happen overnight. Though I think it could certainly happen very, very quickly. But 
you see a good part of an, another dimension to why Israel turns to Germany when you look at this story. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think the longer this goes on, we see how a lot of these prophecies about America's decline and the rise of these other nations, especially revolving around Israel, Germany, Europe, all these things, how much of it is self-inflicted by the United States. You hear these prophecies about America's decline, you kind of wonder, like, well, how, how are these things going to happen? But then you have a leader like Barack Obama come along and just the level of deception and destruction he has done at every single, every single continent, every single level of government. It's hard to wrap your mind around it, but we're living through the fruits of his government now, the, the violence and the turmoil around the world. And yeah, it's just shocking how much of it is self-inflicted by this man fulfilling a lot of prophetic offices in this end time. And Barack Obama is not someone I would be watching super closely if I wasn't led to do so by Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry from very early on, not from the beginning of his presidency. At the beginning of his presidency, Mr. Flurry said that, uh, you know, he's probably as well-meaning as anybody else, but he's just gravely mistaken. Then he pretty quickly after that realized something was very wrong here. And he said, this man is a destroyer. Uh, that's what the Antiochus, that's what... He's, he's called, and, and that was a, a man who was extremely deceptive and extremely destructive. I wouldn't know to watch him that closely. I would think he was just any other former president, but uh, Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry spotlighting, identifying uh, Barack Obama as a man to watch. So watch his rhetoric, watch these events, watch them closely, and know what to look for. And prove for yourself whether you are seeing Bible prophecy and whether you are seeing Bible prophecy as identified by Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry and before him, Herbert W. Armstrong of The Plain Truth. That is all the time we have for today. Email us your thoughts on the program. As always, we're listening at lettersatthetrumpet.com. We thank Abraham Blondeau, Richard Palmer, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic for their reports. We thank Parker Campbell and Isaac Lorenz for their engineering and production. I'm Philip Nice. That is your Week in Review for today's Trumpet Hour. Be sure to join us on Wednesday for the Wednesday edition of the show, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us.